In an abandoned factory in Springfield, Governor Eric Greitens seemed to end a decades-long push to enact right-to-work in Missouri. In office for a little less than a month, the GOP chief executive signed legislation barring unions and employers from requiring workers to pay dues as a condition of employment. Republicans have been trying to pass right-to-work for decades, only to be stymied in the General Assembly or at the ballot box. But on February 6th, Greitens struck a triumphant tone. For him, the political debate had come to an end. You deserve to live in, and today we're taking a step to make sure that you're living in a state where every business is welcome, where jobs are welcome, because you know what? We're in a global competition for jobs, and today we say Missouri's going to win that competition, so let's get to work. Rather than just accept their new fate, members of Missouri's labor unions took an unusual route. They began gathering signatures to stop right to work from going into effect and have voters decide next year whether the law should stand. Right to work opponents gathered more than 310,000 signatures, which all but guarantees the new law will be on the ballot next year. It's a high stakes election that union leaders like Missouri AFL CIO President Mike Lewis expect to win. We're going to end this attack. It's not just on us, brothers and sisters, it's on every working family in this state. So on the latest edition of Politically Speaking, Joe Manis and I talk more about the pending bid to repeal right to work at the ballot box. We also talk with one of the lawmakers who supports overturning right to work, State Representative Doug Beck of Afton. So let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Greitens, Navy <laughs> SEALs running for governor, and I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe. I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors, and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. And welcome to the Politically Speaking podcast, the only show about Missouri politics that's decided to change its format randomly to entertain and exhilarate its listeners. You decided. (laughs) Because he's creative. It's the royal we. That's Joe Manis, a reporter for St. Louis Public Radio, the political reporter for St. Louis Public Radio. And I'm Jason Rosenbaum, the other political reporter for St. Louis Public Radio. And today on the show, we have a very candid conversation with Representative Doug Beck of Afton, But before we get to that interview, I wanted to talk for a little bit with Joe about her story she did about the movement to repeal right to work in Missouri. Okay, to boil it in a nutshell, I don't want to repeat what's in the future, but the bottom line is that uh, Missouri unions collected three times the number of signatures that they need to put on next year's ballot a proposal that would block the state's right-to-work law, which was approved earlier this year by the governor and the General Assembly. Now, so right now, the whole that law is in limbo while, um, while everybody's deciding what the next move is, but it definitely will be in limbo until they decide when to put it on the ballot. In the meantime, uh, unions are gearing up for what's going to be a nasty campaign. Conservative groups such as Americans for Prosperity are already doing uh, phone calls to people. I believe you got a phone. To, you got a phone call yourself, didn't you? Yes, yes. And just so, just so people know, 
it, I get these from both sides, just like anybody else. Usually what I do is I tell the listener, I mean, I tell the caller that I'm undecided so that I get the next question. So you're, I don't take sides. You're but very I, sneaky. Yeah, but I want to hear what the questions are. Fair enough. Fair enough. Without any further ado, here is Joe Manis's feature on the bid to repeal right to work in Missouri. The fate of Missouri's right-to-work law will likely hinge on which side does a better job of connecting with non-union workers like Heather Inman. The Creve Corps accountant hasn't a clue how she would be affected by right-to-work. I hear a little bit about right-to-work as a mother and a, you know, an employee in a non-union office. I have really no idea what the significance is going to be on me or my family. Here's what right-to-work would do. It bars unions and employers from requiring all workers in a bargaining unit to pay dues or fees. Washington University sociology professor Jake Rosenfeld says the debate has become more significant than the law. Right to work in Missouri and elsewhere has taken on a highly charged, highly public profile of incredible symbolic importance for both union opponents and supporters. That's been the case for at least the last five years, as both sides have tangled over the issue in Midwestern states where labor and manufacturing once loomed large. Lawmakers in Indiana, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Kentucky have passed right-to-work laws. Missouri labor leaders are hoping to mimic Ohio, where voters overturned a right-to-work law in 2011. Out-of-state money is pouring in. Just this month, at least $900,000 has been donated to Missouri political action committees that support right-to-work. Labor groups got hefty sums earlier to help pay for the petition drive. That backdrop helps explain why right-to-work supporters and opponents are so committed to their cause. Take state AFL-CIO President Mike Lewis, who told union members at a recent rally in St. Louis that the stakes are just as high for non-union workers. When our wages go down and our pensions go down and our health and welfare goes down and we start getting screwed daily on the, on, on the job, what do you think happens to people that don't have a union contract? It's worse for them. Right-to-work backers say the law allows more flexibility for workers and their bosses, and they paint the benefits in upbeat terms. Something exciting is happening in Missouri. Our state is on the right That track. ad is part of a statewide campaign by an arm of a conservative advocacy group called Americans for Prosperity. It has ties to the Koch brothers. State Director Jeremy Cady says it's spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to highlight right-to-work's benefits. The key one being that uh, no worker should be forced to join a union or pay dues to a union that they do not wish to support. Missouri Chamber of Commerce President Dan Meehan is a big backer of right-to-work and says its members believe the new law is crucial to attracting new business and jobs. We've been uh, pining away for the moment to become a right-to-work state for several years. And it's been a longstanding priority of ours to get this done. WashU's Rosenfeld says both sides are exaggerating the effects of a right-to-work law. He blames job losses more on outsourcing and automation. Still, the statewide vote is welcomed by union workers like Lori Giannini, a cashier at Schnucks. I am over the moon. I am so optimistic about it. I mean, the people have spoken and the union community has come together like nothing we've ever seen. But it's not a permanent fix. Even if state voters toss out right to work at the polls, lawmakers are likely to simply pass another version. The only option for unions is to persuade voters to put a ban against right to work in the state constitution. 
Unions are expected to try to put such a proposal on next year's ballot. They have until May to turn in those signatures. So, Joe, one of the unanswered questions is when the right to work referendum will actually be before voters. I've actually done some reading about the legislature could pass something that says it's on the August 2018 ballot. I guess if they don't do that, it would be in November 2018. Yeah, everybody had assumed it was going to be November 2018. Now, you're right. There is a movement to try to get somehow get it put on the August 2018 ballot instead. Uh, that could may generate a court fight. Uh, it's going to depend partly on if the governor tries to do it. And, and, and there's this other aspect. I mentioned at the, at the, at the end of that feature that they— that labor arguably also needs to get a proposed constitutional amendment on the ballot that would bar any future right-to-work laws. It's unclear if they're going to follow through with their plans to collect signatures or if they're going to have two competing proposals. Um, Representative Beck will kind of refer to that a little bit. So, But my, my point being is that this is a complicated fight and it isn't going to be done yet. And I think that those who think that any single vote is going to resolve this issue is mistaken. You've been covering Missouri politics longer than I've been born. I think you probably (laughs) remember the first right-to-work fight in 1978. But things have changed dramatically in Missouri. There are fewer union members. It's about half. Percentage-wise, the number of union members, it's roughly half of what it was in 1978. With that as a backdrop, given that as you mentioned on the outset of your story, less people are personally affected by it. Could the proponents of repealing right to work have a more difficult time of succeeding this time around? I think if they don't get their message out and really explain to people what it means and how it affects their lives, because as I mentioned, uh, most uh, Missouri voters and most Missouri residents are not in a union and they think this doesn't affect them. What labor is going to have to do is explain how it does. Meanwhile, you've got um, other groups such as Americans for Prosperity who are already doing these phone calls. There's going to be other groups doing it uh, over the next year to 14 months. And I think that it's going to be a very well-funded campaign to basically paint it as just a union issue because most voters will see it. Oh, well, that affects them, not me. And so I think unions' job, their good job is going to have to be, no, it just doesn't affect us. So I think you're going to see this debate over who it affects, and I think that's going to have a big implication going into whatever, uh, whenever the statewide election's held. One person that this fight does affect personally is our guest, Representative Doug Beck. He's a freshman legislator from Afton, which is unincorporated St. Louis County. He's a Democrat. He's a Democrat. He is actually a member of the Pipefitters Union. And as we do with all of our first-time guests, Joe and I asked him a little bit about his background and especially his ties to the organized labor movement. Well, I've always been uh, politically astute. I've always been into politics to some extent. Uh, What do you do for a living? I'm a pipe fitter. Um, Okay. So I'm a pipe fitter. And... I've been doing that for uh, thir- going on 31 years here, coming in October 6th. Uh, but uh, but all along I've been, uh, even before I became a pipe fitter, I've always been politically active. Uh, I, I would go to door-to-door for candidates. 
I would work polls for candidates. So my dad took me on at an early age. I remember the first right to work fight in 78. I was 13. And uh, we had the the bumper sticker. We had a 1974 uh, big old station wagon with the with the uh, fake wood grain on the side and a big uh, right to work uh, bumper sticker on there as a ripoff. And he took me to the polls, and he kind of got got me into that point to where you need to be active and you know and do things uh, you know politically. So um, I know that you're a member of the Afton School Board, and we'll talk about that later in the show. But what prompted you to get involved in state politics? As we were talking about before we pressed record, um, you entered the race in your district a little bit later than some of your colleagues. Representative Janice Monticello decided not to run for reelection after she had already filed. And you were picked as the Democratic nominee. And sometimes those fights can be, uh, those internal committee fights can be quite contentious. It seemed like there was really little there and you were able to win uh, your first term. Tell me kind of what, in, what went into that decision. Well, I, I, first I talked it over with my wife if we want to do this now. I was originally going to run in 2018 when Janice was uh, termed out. And uh, so I talked to my wife about it after I found out Janice wasn't going to run anymore. And we talked and we discussed it. And uh, it was a really short turnaround. We had to decide what we were going to do because I had to get money and, and stuff out right away. Um, and we decided that we'd go, go ahead and do it. I was the one in, in, you know, in the best position in that district to be able to run for that position. Uh, the opponent, my soon-to-be opponent, uh, Daniel Bogle at the time, he had already been uh, knocking doors for like four and a half months. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was actually getting out because we'd seen him come in our neighborhood. You know, and uh, he was out and about hitting doors. And, and uh, so that's kind of why I, I, I jumped into it. And then I couldn't do really do anything because – it was hard because people would get confused. I started going to doors, and people would get confused because I wasn't on a primary ballot. So I had to hold back until after the primary to actually really hit, you know, go out to the doors and talk to people. Now, did your whole contest, was it made more difficult by the whole Trump train that was going on? I mean, South County is kind of a, in some ways, a, almost like a bipolar part in that you have a de- certain number of Democratic legislators, but you often have Republicans winning down there. And and Trump, I think, uh, appealed even to some union workers. So I'm just interested how that affected your contest. So Trump uh, Trump won my district. So my, I think my my election was closer than it should have been. I, I personally thought it was I would have been better off. However, I, I got to give credit to my opponent. He worked he worked hard. He had a good message. He he was a moderate guy, and he was out there hitting doors. He worked hard. So I'm I'm not taking anything away from him. But Trump did win my district, so there was some, some uh, there, there's some coattails there, so to speak. Um, Trump, uh, if you want to talk about union members appealing to Trump, um, I don't understand it. <laughs> uh, I don't understand the logic behind, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not disagreeing that they did vote for him. I think it comes down to passion, if you ask me, because uh, I was a Bernie supporter in the beginning. Um, he came to Afton High School. It was great place was going it was going I was crazy. there I was there too so and and since I'm a board member I got to get in the back I actually was in the back with him in the room and we got to ask quite it was awesome you know and but it was had, a really muddy day I remember that yes yes it was and it, but it was packed house and uh people loved it and uh and but he invoked passion in people um whereas I never really seen that with Hillary uh 
I voted for Hillary. I, I think her values are really close to what Bernie Sanders' values were, especially after they got together. Well, um, she did an event close by. Just to, she did one at the uh, yeah the Carpenters Training Center. Yes, I think exactly. it was like the day before or something. Yes, yeah, I was at both. Yeah. I, I did not make it to that one. Um, actually, I wasn't invited, but I, I didn't go to that one, but I went to the other one. And, uh, and again, there was a lot of passion there. So if I relate that to Trump, I think Trump invoked passion in people because people – the way he he talked about bringing jobs back and he's going to do all these things and and uh, and that was a uh, part of the reason why I think he you know people uh, you know liked him and and voted for him. I, however, always looked at it logically and what he had done his entire life. I just knew that he was not going to do any of these things. He was just pandering to his audience. And as we look today, that's pretty much what he did. Well, how how has all that affected as you've been in the General Assembly, kind of going through? With the right to work debate and all this other, do you think that that support for Trump kind of then carried over into some of the stuff early on, or how? I think Trump and and uh, uh, Governor Greitens both did well because they were unknown people to the political scene. They were newcomers, and that's what people were voting for. They were voting for these new people they thought were going to change their lives. Their lives for years have been, you know, uh, the middle class has been slowly going away for years and years and years here and everywhere else. And they thought this was going to be a change for them. They thought they were going to that there's going to be this miracle, and these people were going to come and change their lives. So what what had been going on for years? As I went to people's doors, I could hear their stories, and you could you could see their houses how they were starting to fall in disrepair. In areas of my district, that when I was a kid, I lived in that area basically my entire life. We looked up to as the upper middle class people, but as I walk through their houses now, you can see that they're falling in disrepair. So I think people were 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 uh, they seen that as some sort of change, and they were hoping that was going to change for them. And, and they were offering – there was an awful lot of promises that were made that were never kept. And, and uh, so I, I think that's, that's part of the reason why their appeal was so well. And as far as the right-to-work fight, I um, – <clears throat> you know, the union people uh, apparently voted for Greitens. Well, um, yeah, so. and in fact, that was going to be my next – Mike's point. I'm going to play a clip now from Senate Minority Leader Gina Wall. She's a Democrat from Belfont Neighbors. She's also a official in the labor movement in Missouri. And we, when we talked with her earlier this year, we, I asked her specifically about anecdotal statements I've heard from members of organized labor that they voted not only for Trump, but for Eric Greitens, even though he was on the record saying he was for right to work. I can tell you, I spent all summer going to union meetings saying, you've got to vote right. If you don't vote right, then you're voting against your own financial interests. People did not listen. They were not listening on Election Day. They're listening now. I hear from them all the time, and I'm like, well, why didn't we hear from you in October and November? I work polls where I seen members that I know would say, I know what my union hall's saying, but I know what I'm doing. So we, our membership elected the president and the governor of the state of Missouri, and we have to take ownership of that. Yeah. Um, but people uh, voted for change. They didn't necessarily believe the change they were going to get. I mean, on its face, that seems shocking to me because, again, it was not like Eric Greitens was being vague about what he was going to do. He was asked numerous times, will you sign right to work in the law? And I think he had to have said 50 or 60 times he was going to do that. I, I just can't. I just can't really – Comp- compute it basically well uh, you know and for somebody like me it's we've always had a phrase maybe they're not hurting enough yet here you go this is what you wanted you got a hold of this now you figure it out and 
he did say he was going to sign right to work. He never mentioned prevailing wage until his state of the state. So that was a lengthy clip. But I'd, I'd like you to not necessarily respond, but give your own opinion about that. Because, again... Especially since you're from a district with that, a, vo- that voted for Trump, and I assume did Greitens win your district, or was it close? No, no Coster won our, our okay, district. Okay. But, but, um, but Trump Trump did win my district. Coster won, won the, the district also, uh, which was different. So, uh, and I agree with what Gina's saying, you know, that people probably did vote it. I, I didn't have a lot of people come and tell me that they're, they were proud of that. They're definitely not proud of that vote now. I did have people call me the day after the election, like, well, hey, what are we going to do now? What happened? You know, and I'm like, well, your time to do something was before the election happened. And, and, uh, and, and that's the part that, that, that's bothersome. And, and some, sometimes today with Facebook and stuff, people think you can do some sort of poll or do something and you can just get everything changed again. But that's just not the way it works. You know, so. Um. So in the General Assembly, here you are, first termer, mm-hmm. and with all this stuff going on, sort of how do you, how how are you dealing with this right now, and how do you think this is going to affect things going forward, either right to work or just other issues that are uh, affecting people in your district? Yeah. So I'll talk about right to work first, and I'll talk about kind of about my experience, I guess. So my experience three days in after I'm sworn in, Three days in, I'm made ranking mem- member of the Economic Development Committee, uh, which is anything but the econo- anything but economic development. I call it the Middle Class Destruction Committee. Uh, everything that came through that committee, there was not one one piece of legislation came through there that created a job, not one piece. Period. Uh, the first first right out of the bat was was right to work. So I'm I made the ranking member three days freshman. I was nervous, scared, everything else. You know, I made a ranking member in this committee. And uh, we had right to work right there, five different right to work bills. Uh, and within two or three weeks, I'm speaking on the floor on, on right to work. Against um, it. Against it, of course. Against it, yes. Um, and I, I can go and talk to you about right I'll talk to you about right to work all day long if you want. Right to work is really a simple thing. If you look at right to work and if you look at the end game, you have to look at Mississippi. Mississippi has had right to work for 63 years. Where are they at? They're in the bottom of everything. That's what they want. That's what that's what the, that's what it is here. It's to take away power from workers, whatever power we do have, which I'm not saying is a lot. They want to take the rest of that away. They want to they want to lower the wages for the entire state, not just union people. Once you take away the unions and the people that speak for workers, the the, the rest of the uh, wages go down. Period. Whether it's a white collar job, whether it's uh, you know blue collar service industry, whatever it is, wages go down. Those are facts. Those are not. You cannot contest that. They can spin them. They can say what they want to say, but those are facts. And I think that they would counter that by saying, yeah, Mississippi's not doing very well, but Texas is doing well and Tennessee is doing well. Texas has oil. Yeah. And but 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 the people are not doing well in Texas. If you look at the standards of the people, what's going on with the people in Texas, maybe the businesses are doing great. I don't know. But the people aren't. And that's what I care about. Mm -hmm. I got elected by people, not by businesses. So, you know, when, I, when I'm on the floor arguing for whether it's right to work or education or any of these things, I, I'm looking at my district and my people and, and the people I represent and how this affects their lives. You know, we're going to go, well, I don't want to get into it yet, but we're, we're, we're going to go to veto session with another issue coming up. So th- those things there, you know, I'm very, I'm very I'm passionate about what I, what I talk about and speak about. Um, you know, I, I try to do the best I can. But I'm always look at people, and I and I do look at jobs. I do look at those things like to create jobs. That's why I voted in the second in the first special session for the uh, the new Madrid thing, uh, the new Madrid with the uh, Amarin and 
the uh, electric oh, rates. Yeah, the the uh, the business proposal, yeah, the redevelopment right. proposal. I voted for jobs on that. Now I may have got hoodwinked because it was supposed to be done by June first, and then it didn't get approved until uh, like a week later when everybody was saying. And, hey, and the know. last, I mean, I actually did a store on that about a month ago, and nothing had been done. Yeah, and it's so um, it, it's frustrating that way. But I voted because those people there down there are poor, very poor. If that was in the city of St. Louis or wherever it's at. You know, if I if we can give people opportunities to to help themselves out, I'll, I'll vote for those kinds of things. You know, and I'll take that heat. I understand that it wasn't the best way to do it. Uh, I, I wish it would have been across the board. Uh, you know, uh, a way of uh, you know d- dispersing those costs, or if there is costs, I don't even know. We don't even know if it's going to happen yet, so we'll we'll find out. Even if the referendum, whether it's on in August or November, the general assembly a year, from, I mean, in January twenty, I mean, in January twenty nineteen could just pass a new right-to-work law. I mean, the referendum really doesn't do anything but just prevent the one they just passed. They could. They could. But it, it, I think it depends on how you win. If you win big, if you win 60%, I don't think they're going to do anything like that. I think if you're closer to 51% or something, they'll probably go ahead and try to do it again right off the bat. Yeah, but even if it's 60 I mean, they have donors who are dying to get right-to-work. I mean, for various no. reasons. I'm, not, I'm just playing. I, I want to ask a, a more philosophical question, and it goes back to what Senator Walsh said. So... A lot of the opponents of the referendum are saying there was a referendum on right to work, and it was in November 2016. When they voted for Greitens. When they voted for Greitens. Now, I I see you shaking your head. I want you to respond to that argumentation because I feel like we're going to hear that a lot from opponents of the referendum. You, You will hear that a lot. And uh, and I think it's wrong. People voted for change. They didn't they didn't vote for one issue right to work. They did not. The people of Missouri did not vote on one issue of right to work. And that's why Greitens became Greitens in part and big part uh, since Trump performed so well here at 19 point win. That's the reason why he's governor today. He was drug along with those coats. If, if those numbers are lower, he's not even governor at this point. So people did not elect Eric Greitens for strictly for right to work. They wanted change. They wanted whatever they saw in him. I'm not sure what it was. But they, some people saw that, and that's what they voted for. I, I don't see it. Well, myself. he had great ads shooting things. Yeah, yeah so that's, that's, just... that's awesome, you know. But, um, you know, I, I don't see how that is to, to govern the state. And uh, so you're, it, it's not a referendum. It was not a one-issue election, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, uh, you guys voted. You know, did you vote on the one issue? It was it all because it was right to work, you know. You know what I mean? So I, I there was all kinds of issues out there that people voted on, and, and whether, whatever they were. Uh, but, but right to work was not the main issue. Majority of people don't even know what right to work is mm-hmm. because they're going to do a really good job of trying to confuse everybody of what it is and what, it stand, what it's all about. The name in itself is confusing because it sounds really nice. It sounds like a utopia. What do you think this campaign is going to be like over the next year and, and are half? you going to be able to raise the money to counter all this stuff? Well, I, we will never be able to raise the amount of money that they're going to raise. Uh, simply when you got billionaires who can just drop money at the drop of a hat and put it into this American for Prosperity. Uh, yeah, j- just so people know, <clears throat> they do not have to report their donations. Yeah. They do not have to report how, li- how the large of donations. It's not the same as, um, I mean, right. uh, these outside groups on either side can do this. Yeah. The governor's dark uh, dark money group just put some money into a right-to-work campaign. Um, uh, Humphreys put some money into a right-to-work campaign there. Some people in Kansas City doing it, and then, but a lot of the money is going to come from from other parts of the country. You know, mm-hmm. it's going to come from other parts of the country to make us a right to work state, which they, which now uh, labor's pouring in money too from other parts of the country. I want to be fair here. I'm sure. I'm sure we're going to have to put money in. Absolutely. You know, we're going to have to. We're fighting for our lives and the lives of 
all the Missourian workers. That's what that's what it's going to be. It's not it's not like this is my choice. It's not like this is labor's choice to have this fight. It really isn't. Uh, we we wish we could, we could be working on other things to make people's lives better instead of always trying to defend ourselves and and defend those around us. And when we're doing that, we're always on the defensive. We, we're never able to go forward and make things better for people. Now, I have a question, though, because there are two other things that are trying to get on the ballot. One is a minimum wage increase, mm-hmm. and one is this multifaceted ethics proposal called Clean Missouri. Will there be enough money for those two proposals if most of the attention and focus is going to defeat right to work? Money on labor side? Yeah, because well, I'm asked that because in 2006, for example, labor was the primary funder of the minimum wage increase in Missouri. And I've seen that um, the National Education Association chapter in Missouri put some money to clean Missouri, which is the multifaceted ethics yeah. proposal. So my question is, as I said before, is there going to be enough resources for all three? Oh, that question, I don't know. I don't have all the money. I mean, it, it's going to be more of a it's going to be more people power than anything else. It's going to be actually uh, going door to door and explaining to people what things are. And that's what we're going to have to do as labor. And that's what we're, we're good at. And we can do that. And it's not just going to be labor because there's a lot of other groups involved with the minimum wage. Mm-hmm. Uh, it'll be it'll be churches. It'll be faith-based groups. There's a lot of groups that will be involved with the minimum wage, especially since what happened here recently, you know, in St. Louis. But um, so that and, and the clean petition, which I think are both – actually, I signed both of those petitions, mm-hmm. you know, and the right to work, just so you know, I did sign that petition. I'm shocked. At, I'm shocked at that. <laughs> Going towards veto session, which I think is there going to be anything that comes up during veto session? That's really up to so so the way the legislature works, and I'm sure you well know, is the speaker decides what is heard, what goes through, and what happens there. That's the bottom line. It comes down to one person. He has the gavel. He decides what we're going to do. Uh, so I've heard that they don't want to embarrass the governor by overriding vetoes on him. So I, I don't know wh- what it's going to look like. I have no idea. How it is. I'll be prepared when I get in there to, to, to do the debate and do what we have to do. I am concerned about HCB3. And, and just for our <coughs> listeners, that is a proposal to reverse cuts made to in-home and nursing home care for, for low-income people. Yeah, basically what happened is there was some money that was – I mean, some legislators – actually was a Democratic lawmaker who found it. But they by using a bunch of small unspent funds in various um, state agencies or – the the idea was compile all that together and cover a budget shortfall uh, for some social services, basically for in-home care for the elderly, and uh, that, that, that the governor had felt he had to cut because of the budget problems that the state's now having. Okay. Now, there's a couple of fallacies with that whole okay. thing. Okay. So one, uh, Representative Deb, Lav- Lav- Deb Lavender did a great amount of work, and trying, we've had her on the show trying to discover. Th- she discovered this money, and these are this is already appropriated money that's been sitting there for for a while in all these uh, different accounts, and uh, and the Senate also voted. I think only there was only four people that voted against it. Yeah, so they were pretty well. That which is unusual for the Senate to be that you know unanimous on anything to to do this, because what this does is it's basically going to throw eight thousand seniors, veterans, and disabled Missourians, they will not get their care anymore, and a lot of those folks are going to be kicked out of their homes because they're not going to be able to get their services. This money's already appropriated, so it has nothing to do with the budget. 
he could have we could have done this at one time. I don't know what we're going to do next year, but we could have we could have yeah, fixed this, it this year. This was to be just a one-time thing where they tried to figure yeah, out where it, to get it the was money. a bipartisan effort by every stretch of the imagination of bipartisanship that I've seen. Mm-hmm. And uh and I still have to give Representative Lavender a huge amount of credit. I mean, she worked a lot on that. I mean, she put a lot of hours. And also, uh, uh, Representative Crystal Quaid and, and Representative Peter Meredith put a lot of time in that. And then they, they, they were dealing with the Senate and everything else. So there's a lot to it. I'm totally on board with it. We I dropped a video today on Facebook uh, about it because um, I, I, I just think it's wrong. It's fundamentally wrong that we're doing that. We're, we're, we're giving corporations and billionaires these tax breaks, and we're, and we're taking it out on the least that can afford it. We're, we're, you know, we're taking taking things away from services. We just they just kicked sixty thousand people off the MoRx program, you know, earlier July first. That happened. Mm-hmm. Um, what are these people doing? You know, uh, we're, gonna, I'm a, we're actually we're going to have a food drive at the end of this month, uh, the Democratic Caucus, only because we really need to. I mean, I, I've been talking to the food pantry in my area. Uh, it, it's went up twenty percent the usage in the last year. So. Well, I want to ask about that proposal. Um, because we had representatives Lauren Arthur and John Carpenter on our show, who are also proponents of overriding HCB3. But one of the things that Representative Justin Alferman, who's a Republican and the vice chairman of the Budget Committee, pointed out is that the, the governor doesn't support it. And a lot of the proposal would require him to actually do something. And he doesn't have to. It doesn't say he has to do this. It says he may do this. So my question is, what good will come of overriding this if the if the governor just says, I'm not going to do this and these cuts are going to continue? Would it require maybe formulating a completely new plan that basically forces the governor's hand? Well, yeah, that's a good question. But by the time we do that, we, we're, we're, t- we're in the next year and these people are already thrown out. They're already kicked out of their home. So the damage is going to be done. The damage is being done right now. We, we need to try to stop it. So. I don't, uh, you know, I, I, I'll fight to the end. I, I, I think we put it back in the governor's court and then appeal to his better nature, I think, that he that he goes ahead and tries to find a way to do it. He can do it. It's a fun sweep. I don't see what the big problem is. Um, obviously, he doesn't want to do it. I don't, I'm not sure why. I don't, I'm not sure why he wants to take this away from these people that can least afford it. I don't understand that part. It's, and I want to reiterate, it's already appropriated money. It's there. It's not new money. Now, I'm um, going on to the next session uh, and getting back to labor issues. Um, okay, regardless, and we, we've, we've already laid out what may or may not happen with right to work, but there's other related issues like the prevailing wage or the um, which, which, or um, what's called paycheck protection, which is similar to the payroll deduction thing, but this would affect public employees. And basically, they would have to get annual approval from the members to have payroll deduction. Um, so what are your thoughts about, might those issues come up? Are there other labor issues that you think are going to come up and how are you guys going to deal with it at the same time you're trying to get support together for the referendum? Oh, I'm sure they will. I'm sure these all are going to come up. I, I, I don't know how, you know, being an election year, I'm not sure exactly what, what length they're going to want to go to. So last year they in the House, they passed a full repeal of prevailing wage. Uh, Representative Warren Love, who's in the news lately, just uh, a little bit. <laughs> he's the one that presented that uh, that bill there, and uh, um, uh, that was the one I was not allowed. I didn't get a chance to speak on the floor. They I, they didn't recognize. I me. think I vaguely remember that, but yeah. not to bring back bad memories. But continue. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, uh, but they went through, and, and people don't realize it. It's a matter of fact. Indiana just uh, they did the full repeal of prevailing wage like a year ago, and if you go look and see what happened in Indiana, uh, they didn't get that three hundred that magic three hundred seventy million dollars that everybody every state's going to get if you re repeal prevailing wage, they say it's going to put $370 million back into the coffers. From where? Less construction costs. They say it's going to reduce construction costs by 30%. If you look at construction costs, labor is 30%. So I don't know where that's coming from, but the math never adds up. And they didn't get these savings in Indiana. And actually what happened was people were coming from out of state and in uh, southern states and going up there and doing the work. The contractors were coming from out of state and doing work. So they're taking the money and they're going home with it. And now they've got a, they got a budget crisis over the whole thing and they're thinking about redoing it. That's why uh, Wisconsin stopped their full repeal because they found out what was happening with it. Uh, so if they, I, I don't think they need to do that here. I don't know why they're trying to do that. I know why they're trying to do it. They're trying to defund unions even more. That will that will get the rest of the unions. That will get the construction unions. Even though we don't do a lot of this work in these other areas, and all per, per, people don't even know what prevailing wage is. So prevailing wage is whatever wage prevails in that county. So if the preponderance of that work would be done by a non-union contractor, whatever it is, say down in Joplin or whatever county that is down there, I don't even know. Uh, and they're doing that work down there, and they turn in this one-page sheet, they would get, that would become the prevailing wage of that. So when they did public works, pro works projects, that would be the prevailing wage. I come from a school board in, in, from Afton, and actually we like the prevailing wage because we know where, where everything's going to be at roughly. We know where, the, where it is, and then you can tell where the, where the markup's going to be in the, that goes to the contractors. It's all, it also gives us a chance to have good quality workers, um, you know, uh, well, that was another thing that they got rid of this year was the uh, project labor project labor yeah project labor agreements, which uh, affected exactly uh, like one percent of all public works jobs. Yeah. Well, I wanted to a ask about the stakes of this, and I'm going to be playing a clip now from Jake Rosenfeld, who is a sociology professor at Washington University. Joe and I have both talked to him extensively over the past six to eight months about union-related issues. This is what he had to say about the impact of states that have adopted right to work and why some states are more affected than others. And then I will ask the magic question afterwards. Nevada is a right to work state. Uh, unions there um, have done a very good job at convincing covered members to pay union dues. And so for other unions out there, I think they should be looking to Nevada right now to find out what they're doing right, what those unions are doing right. Uh, there are other instances, certainly if you look at um, how the laws were structured in Wisconsin, where the passage of right to work has coincided with uh, pretty steep declines in union memberships. Uh, and that was a kind of a, a, a peculiar case in that unions not only um, no, uh, that not only was right to work passed, but also unions were really hamstrung in what they could bargain over. So workers really had little incentive then to pay union dues, given that kind of traditional union activities were uh, cut off by the legislation. So the reason I played that very wonky quote is, even if you are successful at repealing right to work, if the legislature ends up passing all these other things that hamstrung and, and weaken labor unions, is organized labor going to be worse off no matter what happens next year at the ballot box? 
Sure, we'll be worse off, and the people in Missouri will be worse off. It's it, it's it's going to be it's going to be a downward push. It's a race to the bottom, is 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 the way I like to to look at it. I don't like to look at it that way, but that that's what we're doing here. So, uh, you know, Nevada, you can probably address you can address Nevada because a lot of that's Las Vegas. It's one industry basically. It's all casinos. It's all whatever. So, you're going to have a group of people that basically are going to go from casino, 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 and they're probably covered by a lot of the same unions. Um, so I can understand why that they would probably be pretty successful in keeping that. When you have a diverse state like uh, Missouri, uh, quite frankly, people are just not going to, they're not going to want to pay that union because they're not going to see the downfall of it. They're really not going to see the downfall of it. It's kind of like if you if they tell you you don't need to pay your taxes, you don't need to pay for the roads, people are going to do it. They're not going to pay for the roads unless you make, you know, unless you not make them, but, you, you know, unless they're, they're obligated. you got to make a case. Like you got to say if you pay these dues. Yeah you're going to get X, Y, and Z. And if if the unions are, as Professor Rosenfeld mentioned, hamstrung because they pass other laws that make it more difficult to provide that benefit, right. that's where you're probably going to see the, right. the decline. Right. It's already been a decline. I mean, the union workforce in Missouri has yeah. gone down pretty considerably. Well, it's actually went up the last couple of years. Well, so there we're, you go. We're, we're at, I, I would like to address paycheck deception. Okay. You mentioned, and, Please. And, and, and I, didn't, I didn't address that. So paycheck deception, the one you're talking about, it uh, would have been the simple bill where you just didn't, you know, the dues part of it, which mm-hmm. they already do now. They're already right to work now, so they don't, uh, you don't have to pay to be like in, in a public union. That's what Paycheck Deceptions is about. It's about public unions. Right. The one that they, they, they brought to the floor, they bought in committee for us was uh, that you would decertify the union. They called it certified, but you're decertifying the union every year. So you would have to have an election every year to decertify your union. And you would have to have 50% plus one vote to keep the union. So if you think about that, 50% of the entire workforce, even though some of them don't even belong to it, you have to get 50% of that plus one. Nobody would ever win an elected office if you had to get 50% of the registered voters plus one. Hmm. You mean, so it's not just two votes, it's 50% Everybody, of it's 50% of the workforce. So basically it would kill, it would just kill the, it would kill unions, period. It would kill the teacher's uh, ability to be able to to advocate for their students and and for things going on, it would kill all that. And this is just and public firefighters sector. and yeah, public firefighters sector. and police and all that. So that was a that was a major part that it was you know so it was fifty percent of the whole entire workforce, whatever that workforce is, plus one, mm. and you that would be almost impossible to do. So, so just kind of to shift gears in our closing minutes, um, you'll be going into your second year next year. What are some things that you would like to see beyond the labor issues? I know you're you're a major proponent of public education as a as a member of the Afton School Board. Uh, with that in mind, what else do, are you going to be working on and hoping for in the next few months and years? Um, I'm <laughs> unfortunately there's going to be I think there's going to be some really draconian cuts coming this next year, and uh, people don't even realize it yet. They're probably going to have to cut another 500 million out of the budget because of all the tax breaks and that last tax break that they that enacted in 2017 that's going to be like 250 million so there's going to be all this money that they're cutting and so we see where we're cutting from now and they actually call these low budget uh low low fruit hang, low hanging fruit cuts uh the ones that they they made this this year and that's actually was a quote uh but i would I, i'm going to work to hopefully ha- those cuts are not as as bad as they can be uh, I'm also going to try to go forward and move in, in some different areas. I, I had a couple bills this year. I don't know if I'll get any of my bills heard or not. That's entirely up to the speaker. I may have to talk to him a little bit, and you know, maybe we'll talk, and, and he'll 
he'll let some of mine go to committee or something. I don't know. Um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work like I've been doing. I'm going to work uh, on education on the education front. I'm going to try to uh, fight against charters, which are coming again. I'm going to fight against the vouchers, which are, are another problem. All these things, they have, there's no accountability to it. I've been on a school board for nine years. We have accountability. You, you, you have measures, and then you have accountability, and there's penalties for things when, when you don't do it. All these other, these charter schools, they don't have any penalties. They don't, you know, they, they don't have to educate the kids or whatever, and there's no, there's no ramifications from it. And it's just a money, it's just, in my mind, it's just a money grab. I, I, I want to see us educate all kids. And if you, if you look at what we've done at Apton School District, I don't see why we can't do this across the state everywhere. Well, we want to thank you for coming in today. Well, we hope to have you back in the subsequent months and years, as I alluded to before, for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And I believe that you can be followed on Twitter at, at Doug Beck. 562 is that correct that's correct see i memorized that yeah awesome i'm i'm glad because it had a what does the 562 stand for that is my local union i I figured i'm a proud union member as you can see i got it on here local 562 he has the orange shirt on i know that you can't see that while we're talking to you but you'll be able to see that on our website a couple fridays ago there was like five thousand orange shirts and other folks there for uh deliver those three hundred ten thousand petitions it looked like a giant basket of oranges very proud moment a very proud moment Um, We'll be back next time. Until then, so long.